0: The information in this podcast is educational in general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of In the Market Trenches. I'm Eric this is Gary. Uh, if it's your first time visiting us, thanks for thanks for tuning in. Remember, you can find us anywhere podcasts are available. You can check us out at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. You can check us out at snn.network. You can check us check us out at the SNN uh, YouTube channel. That's youtube.com/snnwire. Gary, good to see you. Hi, we're super, everybody. <laughs> we're super excited for uh, for our guest today. Really happy everyone could join us. For those that don't know him. We have Tobias Carlisle joining us uh, to share some more stories, share some updates on what he has going on right now. Tobias, thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me, Eric and Gary. <laughs> uh,
2: it's our, our pleasure. You, you've got quite a background. And I, I think I first came across you through your, I think you had a blog. Was it Greenback? Was yeah, it that's blog? right. And then uh, I, I read one of your books, Quires Multiple, and now you have a whole series of stuff just based on that. So. Uh, maybe give us just a little bit about uh, about your background before we dive yeah. in.
1: so I was uh, I was a lawyer in Australia, uh, working in corporate advisory. Started out, I started April two thousand, and I was expecting um, to do you know VC, and like dot coms were huge when I was just finishing school, and that was kind of what I was going to the school to do. Uh, sorry, going to the firm, what I thought I was going to the firm to do. Like literally, I think it was either the day that I arrived or very soon thereafter the, the collapse started and um, it quickly became like there was no VC being raised, there was no VC being invested and it turned into um, an M&A private equity type market, which I found, you know, sort of much more interesting than uh, the VC the startup stuff because it just seemed a little bit more rigorous. It seemed like there was more meat on it. And through that kind of wreckage, this uh, new breed of investor that, you know, they were basically the corporate raiders from the 80s came back. They weren't called activists when they first came back. They were just kind of like old guys who were back trying to get control of these things. And I'd like read Buffett's letters and I'd read um, security analysis, like, you know, page through it, not really kind of absorbing any of it, but like railroad bonds, excellent. That's I'll commit that part to memory. (laughs) thinking that i will never use that again. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, Red Intelligent Investing, all that sort of stuff. And I was looking at them trying to buy this stuff and I just couldn't, you know, I was like, Buffett, wonderful companies at fair prices. That's that's what everybody wants. And they're buying these companies that were losing heaps of money.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I just couldn't figure out why you'd go through this amount of effort and expense to get control of one of these things. You know, just completely ignoring the fact that what these companies had done has raised tens of millions of dollars and then because they were burning so much cash and that made them toxic to most investors, they had traded way down below their cash value. And um, these guys were just trying to get control of the cash, knowing that they could get on the board, shut down the terrible business, and then they'd have a pool of cash there to go and either liquidate, take the cash out, or then you've got a vehicle that's got you know, tradable shares and cash that you can then go and... They, some of these guys would just do the daisy chain of these things. So they'd get used that as the vehicle to acquire the next thing or back in some kind of business. I, and I just found that kind of like a fascinating approach. And I thought that's one way that I could use my legal yep. training and my legal experience to get into it.
2: It's amazing how these guys think in terms of like, I've, I've met in a lot of these types of folks over the years and they think about it in in terms of like captive pools of money that they control. And it's, right. it's fascinating that that's
1: the mindset. Uh, well, got And you've got two types of currency. You've got the stock that you can use. And often these things, like they just slightly rebranded. So where, where it had been like some dot-com doing something silly, they just turn it into like a vulture fund and start telling everybody that it's now a vulture to go and soak up these other things. And all of a sudden, they kind of trade up to a little premium to the cash because there's somebody who's not going to go and burn all the cash. Right. So all of a sudden, you can use the stock to acquire these other things and shareholders in these little busted.com. so they're looking for a way to get out looking for a way to crystallize a tax loss um looking for someone who's not going to just burn cash and so they the for for a very short period of time they just went around and soaked up a few of these things and i thought if that ever if that opportunity ever presents itself again i will uh, i'll try and take advantage of that so i got transferred to the states i went to san francisco i just had like because i just had this little concentration in tech mma so i started working in san fran um there was not much going on like the biggest thing that had happened was google went public fire this reverse dutch auction which was a um you know weirded everybody out there because they were like why would you get the pop and then it kind of it didn't i think it came on at like 80 bucks a share something like that and yeah. it just it, it kind of left a bad taste in everybody's mouths and the only thing the only vc that was happening in San Fran at the time or the only kind of startups were things that were using google products to try and get acquired by google because they wanted to you know, like a a one million dollar acquisition because the guy wanted to go and work at Google, right. and they'd create like literally a mission burrito like using Google Maps, which was brand new at the time. Mm. And so I uh, I was like, well, there's nothing happening here. And I had this company that I'd listed in Australia, and they said we need a general counsel. Um, we're doing lots of acquisitions and buying up all of these busted assets, and um, we need someone who does who's got. A- a- that kind of experience do you want to come back and do that so i did that i went back took my girlfriend at the time who was uh from from los angeles we ended up getting married i worked in that firm for a while that, that got bought that was one of the best performing ipos to, to acquisition it was like a 600 percent return over a few years um and then i just had a little bit of money and i thought i want to i want to learn activist investing so i found a guy who was like i always call him a reluctant activist his theme was uh, undervalued assets with a catalyst. And so what he'd do is he'd find these things that were just way too cheap, like not necessarily cash flowing, complicated corporate structures with the kind of stuff he liked. So in Australia, that's this quite popular, or it was for a time. So, you know, Macquarie Bank got quite famous doing these. They'd list these securities where they, they were called stapled securities. So there'd be some asset like uh, a port or a rail, rail yard or something that flowed money and they'd put that into a trust structure so it'd flow through without paying tax at the corporate level and then they'd staple the manager a holding in the manager so you'd get a share in the manager as well hmm. stapled to the flow through it so you'd be you're sort of getting a little bit of both sides hmm. and that's you know in a bull market people don't care about how complicated the structure is and then all of these you know, Macquarie did it quite well, then all of these um, imitators came along who didn't do it as well as Macquarie did it, even though Macquarie ran into trouble too. But in 2007, 8, 9, that stuff just became completely toxic. Yeah. And so we would go through and find these things and work out how we could unpick them and get to the bottom of the... There was often a good asset in there. It was just buried under debt and a weird corporate structure. So we just work out how to unpick it, reveal that underlying asset, um, I had a lot of fun doing it and I thought this is ultimately what I want to do. So I, uh, that, that fund was wound up because it was, got too concentrated into one of the big positions, even though, you know, we were buying at like 11 cents, but one of the big positions was we were buying it at half cash, at 11 cents at 22 cents a share in cash, ended up trading down to five and it was just totally liquid. So, uh, the fund got wound up. I started my own little partnership, basically hunting for net nets and special situations and stuff that just completely off the run too small for any hedge funds. And that's, um, what I was doing in Australia, ultimately wanted to get married. My wife, you know, when you have kids, you want to be close to the grandparents. So we're from Los Angeles, she's from Los Angeles, moved back to LA. And, um, that's how I came to be in LA. Interesting.
2: So transition to sort of where you are now. Um, I think you, you wrote the acquirer's multiple. Was it four or five years? I don't remember the exact date, but it feels like it was four or five years ago. Um.
1: So, so when I got to the states, like I had this uh, the the initial structure that I had was this Aussie uh, unit trust, which is which is the way that you know that's probably a sensible way of investing in Australia. Got to the states, and I was trying to raise money into that structure, and that was just a total non-starter for 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 the obvious reasons. So, I transitioned to a limited partnership, not fully understanding, I think how. A uh, limited partnership should be used mm-hmm. and so i raised my you know when you're unknown completely with no network uh as i was to raise money sort of it's always going to be high net worth individuals and i was using that little blog greenback to sort of the uh the way that i would get in front of people and that that was very tough too and so i realized after a while i needed a different strategy and i had uh through greenback I'd met wes gray who was a phd uh at booth at the site at the time Mm -hmm. and we i had this sort of interest in uh quantitative approaches to value investing so we dug up every bit of industry and academic research we could find on value investing going back to like the stuff that had been around since the 1920s like the weird old uh you know the stuff that you used to to determine if something is credit worthy right like and they're all based on like manufacturing companies and they had these weird coefficients in them like does that stuff still work does it make any kind of logical sense to have weird coefficients weighting one thing over another yeah and then we we tested all that stuff found the stuff that did work found the stuff that had probably never worked and it was just like a uh, you know uh, a fluke of the data that they'd found something that no longer applied and that book was quantitative value and it came out in 2012 and, um as we were doing that research, I've just i I've, I've got this deep value bent. I like the really weird off-the-run, and I just noticed that all of these, when things get very, very cheap, they do exhibit these weird behaviours because the you know management doesn't like the company being that cheap. All of a sudden, it attracts activists. It attracts private equity firms. People want to bid for these things. They want to sell assets. So second book called Deep Value that came out in 2014, and I started getting a little… Following as a result of that on Twitter and, and in other places, right. and I, I, I could see that the way to uh, to use a, a smaller following like that is through through a more public vehicle like uh, like an ETF. So I spent basically from about 2015 to 2019 trying to work out because they they just they exp- they have been very very expensive uh, funds to get going they've become much cheaper over the years but initially they were like a million dollars to get going I didn't have a million dollars to stick into a to stick into it and then so basically it got to the point a few years ago where the the cost had come down enough and my assets it sort of got to the point where I could do it myself which is what I wanted to do so I launched um, the acquirers fund which is a long short deep value US focused fund it's it's uh, at its maximum exposure, it's 130.30, but that's, I can move that around a little bit depending on what the opportunity set looks like. So it's um, long, really deeply undervalued cash flowing assets where management typically is doing the right thing and buying back stock. Short stuff on the other side that's statistical fraud, statistical earnings manipulation, heavily levered negative cash flow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's since it since it launched, it's the market has been still pretty hostile to that to that style. But it, that's, I think that that's a short term phenomenon. It's one of those things that, um, you know, the market does go through these periods of sort of whether these little boomlets and fundamental investing doesn't work, and then it all comes back into vogue very violently. And it's value that deep value style does tend to do quite well over over periods of time. And so more recently, because I that long short fund is only focused on the top 25 percent of listed companies just because to short you don't want to be shorting in stuff that's too small you're very subject to the illiquidity and what other people are doing in it so yeah. i've recently partnered with the roundhill guys um to launch well we a competitor of mine in, in in zig uh got into the trouble or decided they didn't want to run the etf anymore so they they tried to abandon the ETF and uh, Roundhill kind of got control um, and we have basically managed it together. So I provide the, the the portfolio for it and it's focused on the smallest 75% of companies, which is small 75% by market cap. It's roughly sort of Russell 2000 below. It's like a minimum market capitalization of about $75 million, which is an NYSE listing rule. And and then the maximum market capitalization is sort of two billion dollars each, so it's small and micro, right. and it's a little bit more diversified. But I think it's it's kind of like it's a super interesting part of the market for, to be in because the companies just get so wildly out of where they should be because there's a lot of you know there's weird stuff that goes on there. We can talk about that in a little sure. bit.
2: Yeah, so full full disclosure, we're not investors in the funds, and you know nothing uh, talk about related to the funds is an offer or solicitation to buy the funds. Yep. But it's an interesting strategy because, like, part of what Eric and I do in some of our kind of more special situation type stuff is, you know, we we try to go where we think there's high likelihoods of being mispricings, for better or worse, uh, you know, and and so. What you're saying, uh, being in the top, was it 25 percent? The bottom 25 percent of the market cap. Is so
1: it's it? bottom 75. But that's okay. The-
2: okay. So you're avoiding the top 25 percent of the market cap. But I mean, there's more. If you're doing that, I, I would assume that there's more likely to be mispricings either one way or the other, wildly overpriced or wildly underpriced.
1: Is that is that sort of? Uh, it, I mean, it's 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 the mispricings. The mispricings. Like I don't I don't think that it's very rare to find mispricings that are. Uh, that there's no reason for the mispricing. Like every time I find a mispricing, it's because, you know, management, there's a lot more risk in small and micro companies, for one thing. They don't have the resources that mid-cap to large-cap do have. Mm -hmm. And there just aren't as many activists and uh, private equity firms kind of roaming around keeping these things in line. Often they're controlled by founders who are, you know, idiosyncratic, kind of unusual people, and you kind of have to be a little bit that way to get these things to that point. But then, you know, a guy who's got something going and is worth a lot of money and is in control, you're subject to what he wants to do running that company. And sometimes they're not necessarily running it for the other shareholders, they're running it for themselves. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of hair in small and micro, and you're doing a lot of handicapping. Is this thing unfairly undervalued? despite the fact that there is this obvious issue with this thing or is this thing, you know, fairly undervalued because this is a real issue. And so that's a lot of small and micro, you know, you guys would know from the, there's more special situation stuff like things are undervalued because they're illiquid or, you know, people who hold them don't want to be in them for, for a variety of reasons because the, the, they've already got a massive loss and they want to crystallize the tax loss for the end of the year, or whatever the thing might be. Yeah. And so I, uh, that, that a lot of the small and micro work is just that like literally handicapping these things is this are we getting a good return for the risk we're taking here?
2: Yeah, so can you just like at a high level sort of just walk us through the investment process? How does it start? And then, you know, you're quantitative in nature? Is it all quantitative? Do you? Are you doing fundamental work? Are you looking at the accounting and the and the cash flows and the balance sheet? And um, I'm sure you're screening for those things, obviously, but do you? How do you date? just Kind of take us through it just a little bit.
1: So the process is um, we're, f- we're, we're using the acquirer's multiple as the first cut. So from the book, that's just the the, the way a very simple metric that uh, private equity firms and activist firms use to identify things that are undervalued. And so you're looking at enterprise value relative to what this thing's earning on an operating earnings basis. That's sort of the first the first place. We're looking for things that are cheap on that basis, but mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's not the valuation. That's sort of the pricing of those things. And I think it's true that if you buy enough of these things cheaply enough, you will get good performance. But I don't think that that's, you can't stop at that point in a fund. I think you need to sort of go beyond that to mm-hmm. to see if these things are worth earning. Because as I was saying before, they do have a lot of, there are a lot of issues with them. So yeah. We're trying to make sure that the cash flows match the operating income, that there are no um, huge liabilities. This is not uncommon. Huge liabilities are in the notes that mm. should be carried on the balance sheet. Everybody would agree that that's a liability, that's a risk convertible notes that convert at some very sweet price. Yeah. So the screens can't pick a lot of that stuff up. And the, the, the idiosyncratic accounting from one thing to another thing makes them difficult to compare on an apples to apples basis. So there is this forensic accounting stage that we go through to make sure the economic reality of the company matches what the screen says that it is and that was that was something that I used to do by hand uh, that was like a decade of being an mA attorney really? uh, sort of teaches that that was a lot of what we were doing you know producing the filings and the documents the prospectuses making sure that the they reflected what was actually happening in the company now it's uh, now I use a, a service that sort of does it, uh, and you know we we cross check what they do as well. But basically, that's the idea. We're trying to find, you know, super cash rich balance sheets um, buying back stock, which I think is a pretty good signal that th- th- there are multiple things in a buyback. If something is undervalued, and we we already think they're undervalued, but a buyback tells you that management's also aware that the thing's undervalued. And that sounds funny to say that, but there's a lot of managements who just don't ever think about the valuation of their stock relative to where the company's yeah, trading. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, sounds- we know a few of those where we had to explain the difference between, you know,
2: oh, you know, buying in your stock today at a low price versus future earnings. And like, if you think your earnings are going to be three or four X a couple of years out, you're buying it at a, today at a quarter of X. It's like, that's probably the best deal that you can get as long as you're not you don't need to reinvest the money in the business. It's like
1: some of these guys, it's like, they're not.
0: They just don't think about their business that way.
1: Yeah, that that's it. It's because it, we're we're finance guys and we approach it as a finance question first, whereas a lot of these guys are product guys or engineering guys, startup guys, and they approach it as a product or engineering problem first. And they've got you know it's it's a huge often for these guys who've listed these things. It's a huge achievement to have got it to that point to to have got it listed, and they're focused on growing the business yeah. without ever thinking about the stock price relative to the business. And I've done this when I was an actress, We used to go in and say. Have you thought about buying back stock and they're like why, why would we do that? So for exa- and we just explained that very simple thing There's nobody had ever said it to them. It wasn't that they weren't um, they weren't resistant to it. they just it had just never they just never thought about it. And so we'd say that and often that was enough just to begin a little buyback in these stocks. so well, that that makes a huge amount of sense. No one's ever kind of explained it to us in those terms. like they're small businesses they're, the guys sitting on the board aren't, investment bankers from top flight funds or guys who think in terms of investment so i found that to be that's that's very effective so when i find someone who's actually doing it that's a very strong signal in a small cap micro cap world and it also says they've either got the cash on the balance sheet or they've got the free cash flows to to support that kind of buyback which is another very powerful signal Mm -hmm. and then um you know so just undervaluation, healthy balance sheet healthy cash flows buying back stock pretty strong signals and across a broad enough portfolio i'm reasonably confident that over a period of time that should that should win out
2: um, approximately how many how many different names do you feel like you need because i feel like if you're looking for statistically cheap things i think on average they'll work they'll they'll they, they tend to work but you can have a really wide variation around that average so how many is enough for you and how do, you, how do you think
1: about that? It varies depending on the market cap. So in the larger cap stocks, I think you need fewer. You can be reasonably confident that and just that they just don't get that undervalued on, you know that when I say not that undervalued, stocks clearly move around like thirty percent on average from peak to trough, even in a large cap universe. In a small cap universe, you know any given day the whole portfolio moves around three percent, so it doesn't you know, the whole portfolio can move around that much. So you need much, much broader exposure. So we take—I I don't think you can get much more concentrated than about a hundred positions. I mean, you right. can, but then you become very, very volatile at that. Mm-hmm. Like a hundred positions in the fund, the last few weeks, like every single day has been like a three percent day up or down. There's gigantic moves in the sort of small and micro cap stuff. You've also got the problem that you know you're limited by your smallest position. So if there's a seventy-five million dollar position in there, and you're trying to put a material portion of a fund into it, you got. You know, there's a there's a natural limit on how big that fund can be. Even at a hundred positions, it's never going to be a very big fund. It's always going to be quite a small fund. But I think that that's okay because it should. It's a performance fund, like it should demonstrate the pretty solid outperformance, and that's kind of what I'm chasing at this point in my career. I want to show that these things generate good returns. How do you manage that in the context of an ETF? let's say so with
2: ETFs you know you don't necessarily know who's going to be in your like, come into play in your sandbox that day you know money comes in goes out you know whatever it's not an LP structure has the advantages of being uh, uh gated you can have lockups and that type of thing so for the I, I get the diversification of it's helpful in mitigating some of some of those issues but you know you get a big cash flow that comes in or a big cash flow goes out like how do you, how do you sort of deal with that as the, as the manager of one of these things
1: one of the nice things about etfs uh which which makes it different to managed accounts and limited partnerships and other things like that is that i don't necessarily have to deal with those things because there's a limit there's a uh market maker lead market maker who's responsible for that so the lead market maker is dealing with the flows and the the way that the etf works they've got this custom create redeem function or create redeem just doesn't have to be custom this create redeem function where they're creating the portfolio as a basket and then exchanging that for units in the fund or reversing that process. So mm-hmm. I don't have to think about flows as much as a mutual fund does, for example. I think about the portfolio. Big movements like that are, are, you know, either way, uh make it more difficult for the the market maker. And there's also some rules around what we can include in terms of liquidity and sizing. Right. But um, you know. If, you, if you're used to dealing with small and micro-cap stuff, the $75 million cutoff for a minimum seems quite high. You know, there's, yeah. there's lots of companies that you can buy for less than that. Do you have uh, any
2: liquidity requirements in terms of how you manage this? Because I, I can tell you that I think we're involved in a couple of companies that are $100 million, you know or more, and there's just days where they don't... like. There's days I, I've experienced days with certain companies where they've reported earnings and the stock's not traded. So like uh it's like if, if the company reports earnings and stock doesn't trade at the earnings really happen, you know, like who knows,
1: right? Yeah. So there are there are minimum liquidity requirements and it's just like a tra- over the last one hundred days, how how much has has traded on average and we we can't buy them below a certain liquidity requirement. So those sort of those constraints, you know, will they take away some of the performance of uh, you know, what potentially you could achieve in a limited partnership where you could get Concentrated in these things and not care, but then limited partnerships also have to deal with liquidity issues, even gates and uh, you know lockups and those sort of things aside. I I just find it. I I think it's it's entirely appropriate given certain strategies to have those sort of things, but for an ETF, and many of these things are pretty liquid. It just seems to me that you. know it doesn't really make that much difference if you're if you're selling some of these positions out to to accommodate a liquidation or or an investment you know if the good things happen you to buy those things so i'm 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 i think that it's it's worth it for uh to provide the kind of behaviors that that etfs do that makes sense
0: so tobias i I mean i think producer bobby has shared with you a little bit about the background of the show how we came to be what we want to do We want to talk about a story from in the market trenches. Um, We we really put our um, our ego uh, to the side when we talk about some of these stories and we just share some of the war stories that as investors, we all have inevitably faced. So is there any one particular story that kind of shares out that you might be willing to share with us?
1: I mean, I'll have to I'll have to think about it a little bit as as I'm going through. But there's I can talk a little bit about one of the holdings that I have in the fund, and you guys probably know this. Everybody, I think it's pretty I think he's pretty well known. But you know, Big Larry Holdings. You know, Big Larry.
2: No, Big Larry. No. Oh, ble- oh I'm no, I'm sorry. We do Big Larry. Uh, ah, uh, Sardar. Uh, yeah, that's we, it. We know, yeah, we know that one. That's the guy with what? uh is he only only? Uh, he spent a ton of money on some Wu-Tang album or something and he's the only one that has it. That's the, that's the
1: guy, right? Isn't that, isn't that, I think that's, um, no, 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 that's, that's not Big Larry. He hasn't done that. Big Larry's, that's, uh, you're thinking of uh, Shkreli. Right, right, right. Oh, that's, right that's
2: right. That's right. That's right. right yeah. Big Larry's the guy
1: that bought Maxim,
2: right? uh,
1: that's, it. that's it. So, so, you know, Big Larry, This is, I think he's such a good example of what you find in the small and micro cap world because, you know, he is a very talented investor over a long period of time, 20 years, and he's still a young guy. He's only, I mean, he's only mid 40s or something like that, I think, which is relatively young for somebody who's got 20 years of experience managing funds. Like he's, he's got this 20 year track record, which has outperformed the S&P 500, despite the fact that it's been very rough for his style of investment over the last sort of decade. He, um, he ran the Lion Funds, he used them to get control of Steak and Shake, Western Sizzlin, these kind of businesses, and he's rolled them into what has now been turned into Big Larry Holdings. And it's Big Larry Holdings because it's BH, because he's a, a fan of Berkshire Hathaway. Right. But the, the, uh, the really funny wrinkle is that he made the, the public company buy his fund, and then right. the fund has invested in the public company in this sort of roundabout Weirdly, uh, cross-holding kind of way, with the effect that he's basically he's 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 basically entrenched because there's A and B shares. He he basically controls both. Plus, he's got this incentive structure built into it now. That's like the Buffett partnership. He's got a 0625 incentive structure in this thing, right. and so he's very shareholder unfriendly. He's very dismissive at the meetings. So people go along and ask him questions. He just sort of says, you know, it's my way or the highway i'm in control and you're you're here for the ride or not and it makes no difference to me whatsoever which makes people understandably pretty upset so that's why the stock trade's at a huge discount and it's you know because it's uh it's this weird structure and they're running the the investment losses through the income statement which you have to do now it looks disastrous if something happens to to the investments which has happened now
2: so so based on your background and what you sort of describe with untangling sort of weird structures, it sounds like you're sort of so uniquely a, suited to sort of examine this and understand it.
1: This is a good this is a good example of what we do. So putting all of that aside, so that's that's the that's the reason why it's trading where it is. Mm-hmm. Another way of looking at it is this guy is basically or, or it's all of his the very vast majority of his wealth is in this thing. Plus, he's got this incentive structure that's zero, six twenty-five and there are lots of hedge fund managers out there who've got that, followed that Buffett model, who've got that 0, 0625. I think that that's, you know, in a world of the 10 years, like 80 bips, um, I think that the 0, 0625 structure is possibly even unfair to the manager. I mean, it's a pretty good structure. I wouldn't mind having it, but it's probably, the six is high, given that when Buffett put it on the 10 years, it probably it's six. So it's sort of... Yep it's a it's a good it's not a bad incentive structure and from what i've seen like his investments i don't think he's really put a foot wrong he's done he's buying traditional deep value stuff and i think that he's buying it pretty well Mm. and so i think if you put if you can unpack the accounting and get comfortable with him being in control and sort of being dismissive of shareholders but being a very talented investor who's heavily incentivized for this thing to work and you view it as sort of investing In his hedge fund, but at a massive discount to cash, then all of a sudden it begins to look like if if value turns around, and I'm a believer in value turning around, you know, I've got these sort of positions in my fund. If value turns around, all of a sudden this thing is going to be a completely different kind of entity. And it's not hard to see how, given three or five years, he could, uh, there's a return of the startup. Big Larry's back, he's he's doing really well again in the stock trades, potentially at a premium to the cash that's in it, which is it's trading at a big discount at the moment. So that's kind of the, that's a good example. It's an, it's a good example of what we, what I look for. Something that's like complicated kind of a little bit of an ick factor to it, but is ultimately still probably a pretty good investment.
2: Right. So, so with that particular one, you've got somebody who's entrenched, who's in control. There's been some I'm going to say related party dealings. I think it's fair to say.
1: Um, (laughs) It's I mean, it's all, it it is, but it's all disclosed and it's all, it's nothing, nothing's happened unlawfully. Right. Sure. Sure.
2: How do you get, how do you get comfortable that like you're allowed to be along for the ride and that you're going to be treated well alongside of him in a situation like that?
1: Well, at the moment he's, it's trading at a big discount to cash. So it was all cash and marketable securities. So there's that, um, you have that as as part of uh, as part of but also like he he doesn't get paid unless this thing really starts working, okay. and when I look at the, what he's paid to do, which is essentially to he's he's there to make investments. He, he does some operations of these of these um, the, the restaurants that they've bought. And he's you know he he thinks like a capital allocator. He's trying to turn them from being company owned into being franchised to free up that capital. Like right. um, uh, the the things that he's doing are sensible are good ideas, they're sensible things to do. And his incentive structure is such that if they work, that's the only way that he gets paid. Right. And he's also wholly, you know, his huge amount of his wealth is in this thing. So for a variety of reasons, it has to work for him. Right.
0: So I don't know what his wealth is. Is it such a large number that it doesn't really matter whether or not it works out for him? And for some of these guys, they're just worth so much money that these things become pet projects for them, and so whether it's wildly successful or not, it doesn't make a difference to them personally.
1: I think that most of his wealth is in this thing, but I think that more than more than his wealth, it's it's sort of. Um you know it's like it's ego that really needs to make this thing work and i don't know if which is a more powerful driver but they're both very powerful drivers i mean he he's called it big larry holdings because he likes the bh because he wants he's got that ticker he wants to be compared to berkshire Hmm.
0: um what do you think he needs to do to close the discount and do you think it's within his power to at any at any point could he decide I'm ready to close this discount. I just have to do steps one, two, three, and I think I'll get an immediate re-rating.
1: No. Well, I think that he's doing the things that you would need to do to get that re-rating. The the what needs to happen for him is that, you know, value needs to kind of turn around a little bit. Deep value needs to turn around a little bit. We can talk and you know, I I've got we can talk for a long time about what's happened to deep value over the last sort of <laughs> right. decade or so. Right. You know, the people who the people who have survived in this business are uh, that you know, the deep value guys, there's just there's this litany of deep value shops that have closed up or become family offices or uh, just not been able to survive. And there are you know, guys like David Einhorn. So, I distinctly remember when David Einhorn was regarded as a genius, and I've seen Einhorn pitch at value investing congresses and things like that. Nobody does more research than David Einhorn, mm-hmm. he hasn't gone from being the goat to being a goat over a deck over two different decades something has happened over those two decades that where once his strategy was probably um you know overly favored there was probably a golden era of of value coming out of the dot-com crash so probably he was he was never as smart as he looked to be but now it's gone the other way where it's been unfairly punished and now i don't think he's as dumb as he looks to be and i think that the Often that's sort of what we're trying to do in this business. You, you look at look at the trajectory in this business. Is this, is this because management has just completely lost their mind for a period of time? Are there sort of exogenous factors? Are there things going on that just make them look dumb? But they're, they're doing what you would want them to do. They are going to survive. While they survive, they are taking advantage of the undervaluation. Mm-hmm. And they're putting themselves in a position where at some stage this industry turns around when the industry turns around they're going to make a lot of money for a long period of time because it just you can't you can't go back into that industry immediately you have to reinvest in that industry so that's sort of that's the way that i think about it is i'm looking for something that the business is beaten up but we're trading at a big discount to a trough valuation and so if we get that return to so if we get some mean reversion in the business, and we get a, the discount to the to the value closing, like there's potentially very good performance in here, that's sort of, that's how I think about investing in cyclicals, and I'm prepared to invest in cyclicals, you know, knowing that it's very, very difficult to get the bottom, no one's ever going to get the bottom and, you know, oil and gas has been kind of mind blowing how far down the bottom really is in that I've watched I've been, I've, I've been in the markets for about 20 years, I've seen I've seen $100 oil twice with this idea that it was going to peak, you know, each time it was peak oil. And I never thought that I'd see it, but that, you know, we've seen negative oil, negative I know, oil that's pretty price. pretty amazing, right? <laughs> I, I, you know,
2: 2020 is a year where I thought we'd seen everything and like by, by, by April and, and by, by the end of April, I think we were staring at like negative $30 oil and I was like, this, well, this, this, is, this is everything.
0: Uh, we're pretty creative guys, and uh, <laughs> I don't think we had that one.
2: Uh,
1: that wasn't on the board. But, uh, I didn't, didn't uh, eventually, uh,
2: go negative, but uh, <laughs> I'm not, I wasn't smart to see that.
1: I think the craziest thing this year is that the New York Times carried this article, basically saying we've found. Um, off-world vehicles or we've got a strategy for dealing with off-world vehicles and like nobody's even read the article they're like i was just too busy that day there was too much stuff going on yeah, yeah. like ufos is like number six on the list of things that happened this year you know
2: yeah i mean it's, it's, it's a it's a list of oddities i mean and then you know the election on top of it and we still don't know how that's going to shake out and it's just like i just want 2020 to be over <laughs>
1: Well, the, the, the pro, I mean, I hope that 2020 is over when 2020 is over, but 2020 is one of those years that, you know, you might still be dealing with 2020 by June 2021. I always think, like, every time that there's been a world war, the, the story that they always say is the boys will be home by Christmas, and like sure. five years later, they're still fighting over in Europe. Well, Christmas of so. what year? <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's a tr- it's a truism. that's going to be yeah. Christmas, just, yeah, we're not going to tell you which year. It's, it's
2: funny. So the Baglary thing, um, just to close the loop on that, they're, I think I've seen him buy a bunch of Form fours. So I know he's buying stock. Or at least I haven't seen it recently. I have not be fair. I haven't looked recently, but I remember over the last couple of months, I think I've seen that. So he's buying. I think I've seen him buy stock. The company is also buying stock.
1: Yeah, there's there's buybacks at every level. There's um, there's you know he's a he's got sharp elbows, Sada. He's probably buying more for himself than the company's buying for for itself, but um you know that's that's why it trades where it does like it's, it's in this market it's hard to find things trading at a big discount to what is essentially cash they're, they're cash and marketable securities it's like a third of cash and marketable securities you don't get the discount like that without significant hair but i think that some of the hair is you know i can look through it and see that it's it's a it, it could easily turn around and the things that they're pointing at now as being negatives could be positives, you know, that oh, it's the incentive structure that made him start performing the way that he did. Or it was the fact that his name is on the door and it's performed so badly and he needed to turn it around.
2: So, so with that one, if the, if the, if the strategy turns around, they're going to start booking profits on the strategy through the P
1: and L of, of I think the, that that's, that's what happens. Yeah. yeah
2: interesting. So, I mean, oftentimes for us, when we look at these things, like, you know, the, thing, the first thing I ask myself or ask Eric is like, what's going to make it go up? And so uh, oftentimes for us, it's like, is this thing getting better? Is it getting worse? Or is it staying the same? And can we tell? And so it sounds like, uh, and, and we, there's a very strong emphasis on the, can we tell yeah. uh, part, part of the equation? So, uh, so that it's, you know, a more favorable environment. I mean, that in itself sounds like it could be its own catalyst. I don't, I'm,
1: very- and the other thing, like I've got, I've got, I've got a point of the fund in this thing. So I, you know, it's, it, just the nature of the the small and micro, we're never going to be hugely exposed. I think that for risk reward of something like that, a point, you know, maybe that's a, that's a little bit too too little. But a point is about appropriate. I could be, you know, that's sort of an option size position. That's that's the nature of a fund like this that it's filled up with about a hundred little call options yeah. on binary situations where the outcome could be you know, asymmetric binary situations where the outcome could be quite big. It could be as simple as they just start doing a little bit better. And then that comes through the income statement and all of a sudden it shows up on some other screens.
2: Yeah. So full disclosure, on the, the then you got, you own it in the fund. Do you own it personally or
1: no, it's through the fund. I, I only hold the funds.
2: Okay. And we don't own it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we've only casually sort of followed the story from, a, from afar. Uh, That's interesting. So maybe what we can do is talk a little bit about sort of the deep value, value and deep value and the woes of value and deep value and what is value and what does that mean? And maybe we can get all existential.
1: Well, I can talk about, let's talk about, I've got some older activists. This is not, this is nothing in the fun. This is nothing that I've done in the States, but you know, the the activism is kind of a funny world where you're always running into um, colorful characters because that it's the idiosyncratic characters that kind of make the get these things going in the first place, you've got to be a little bit weird to kind of get it to this point. But I've had lots of fights with, um, you know, so there was this uh, this company in Australia that made steel um, accessories for for cars, basically um, bumpers and like the things that you attach the lights on the front of the car, all that sort of stuff. And they had um, these two securities, they had the, the common or the ordinaries, as they're called in Australia, and they had these preference shares. Mm-hmm. So the prefs had been, Uh, cumulative um, and then they did this funky conversion where they turned them into non-cumulative and then they took away some of the rights and so we took them we got control you know got control of a big chunk of it initially uh went to the went to the shareholder meeting so this is this is a great trick if uh if you get control of the chair from a shareholder, I mean, it gives you a lot of power to do a lot of things. You can call on votes on the floor. So that was our strategy to go and get control of the chair. We put some people in the audience who had some proxies of ours. And so we could vote it in on hands, uh, didn't get, they, they, they knew it was coming, didn't get it through, but we had to stand up and kind of make these pitches. And then you have these small shareholders who are, um, you know, don't really know what's going on. They just know that the manager is their guy. And these other assholes over here are kind of trying to fight with their guy. And right. so they start, they start standing up and giving these um, you know, like testimonials about what a quality human being they are. And I'm like, they've just they've they've literally just robbed you blind. Like they've put their hand into your pocket oh and God. you don't understand what's happened to you. When, you know, I'm not trying to debate it with them on the floor, just sort of pointing out that that was that was my thought process at the time. Right. So it was a very hostile room ultimately. Um We didn't succeed there so we took them to court and then at court it became this uh this legal argument about so they had this is what had happened they declared the dividend sorry the dividend was payable they hadn't declared it on the prefs you know as a quarterly dividend it hadn't been declared but it was payable so we took them to court to try and get them to pay the dividend there's hundreds of years of case law that say that there's no dividend payable until they declare it that's just that's just an established rule of 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 law, but we had you know fired up the the barrister in Australia to you, you, this is you're going to make some law here. <laughs> you're going to overturn like 130 years of pretty established case the law from
2: is the judge in this in this.
1: No, the barrister, the barrister is the advocate. The barrister the um, the barrister is the attorney. So Got in it. Australia, the, there's a distinction between solicitors who, who have very limited rights of appearance at court and barristers who can appear. Anywhere. And so the barrister, they follow what's called the cab rank rule. So if you if you you engage the barrister, they have to appear on your behalf. So you hunt around for guys who are commercial, who understand this sort of constitutional corporate interaction. And then you give them these assignments that suck. Like it's he can't. There's nothing that this guy can do. And I know there's nothing this guy can do, but you know, I, I just right. want to kind of get these guys in court and show them that we're serious and we're we're prepared to we're gonna litigate. Every single part of this kind of story, so we got them in court, uh, made made it like what I thought was a pretty compelling argument, fully knowing that it was never going to get up, but you know make it sound good. And then I saw the judge kind of wavered, but ultimately rendered the right decision, which was the wrong decision for us, but the correct decision at law. And so they 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 won that. And then we we just sort of continued this war of attrition with this guy, where we'd buy the buy the ordinaries and try and get them tipped out, but they're in control position. So um, ultimately, we prevailed because the guy passed away halfway through the the battle.
2: So isn't that like the story where like uh, the king sentences the guy to death, and uh, he's like, "Well, give me a year to make your horse talk." And uh, when they're leaving, the guy's like, "Oh, you're nuts! You're never gonna be able to make that horse talk." He's like, "Well, all kinds of things could happen in a year. He could change his mind. He could die. He could, you know." That's that's like it sort of reminds me of that story a little bit. Believe it or not, you're the second person on this podcast to talk about an, an Aussie true. an Aussie <laughs> Press <laughs> story.
1: And, Is I, that and right? a barrister.
2: <laughs> and I didn't and I did not get the definition of the barrister. What was the, I, what was the other story? Uh it was a guy Chris Summers. Uh he actually used to work at Greenlight who a fund that you mentioned. And uh he had his own fund for a little time. And he was talking about a, a paper company that had a pref. And um I forget the name of the company. Um, yeah, we didn't say the name of the company because there was litigation. That's uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, thank you for the uh, thank you. For thank the thank hand you Rob, yeah, was yeah, uh,
0: litigation. I guess some of the people involved were pretty high up in parliament um, or the judicial system over there. They're pretty well connected yeah. and they didn't want
2: to be embarrassed. So ultimately, they, they wound up working out in their favor. But it was the return on brain damage that he described was you know, you makes you wonder if it was worth it, you know? But that, I
1: mean, that's the nature of activism, right? It's, there's everybody else is just like, this is too hard. So this is too hard. This is too hard. And finally, somebody says, you know what? There's enough return here. And the kind of personalities that are good at this stuff for the, you know, ambulance chasing lawyer who is an activist the the people who just inflict psychic pain on other human beings and don't absorb any of it themselves are very good but that's ultimately why i'm not an activist because i absorb the psychic pain like i hated sitting across from this guy and he was just like what are you going to do and i was like well i don't really have many tools but i'll just keep on going for a while and see what you do (laughs) and uh that was not the way that i was planning on winning but not that we won like that that basically the the holding got passed down to his daughter and then that was the and she was sort of like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. so But I'm still holding on to the shares. So it didn't ever get resolved favorably, but it did trade up a little bit. Okay. Well,
2: hmm. So that's a situation where you got somebody that's entrenched that's hard to get out and, and sort of try not to... Well, you're never going to
1: get them do. out. You're just basically never going to get them out. The only way, you know, Dan Loeb, I had some comment. It was either Dan Loeb or, or Bob Chapman, Robert Chapman III. Do you guys remember Chapman from like maybe a decade or so ago? He was an mm-hmm. LA-based activist.
0: I don't know. Him. I never, I never ran across him. He was like a was a small fund.
1: and Mike. He was a small and uh, the, the fund. I think it was called Chap Chapman Capital. Chap, Cap. okay.
2: No, I don't. Rec- I don't recall that one. But uh, <laughs> he he
1: his, was basically he was the guy who invented the 13D letter, where he'd write the really nasty letter where he'd like. All right. I think I might
2: have read about him in Jeff Graham's book. Uh, Dear, was it Dear Chairman? Was he possible? Was that yeah. Because there were a whole bunch of really good stories in that book that I that I liked and. Yeah. Right. my favorite one in that book was ross perot who was a great oh, that was a great <laughs> a badass like, he, when he passed away he did not get enough credit for no you know, getting his own jet and his own former navy seals to get his guys out of iran like that's just right
1: a, a boss Ultimate move if, I've, heard, if <laughs> yeah. I've ever heard one uh the, the, i digress uh, um, the, the only the, the only point he's in i think he is in that book too and i think that they did i think that jeff did credit him with inventing the 13d but he basically gave the idea to he knew Dan Lowell, they knew each other pretty well. And so Dan then sort of perfected the 13 D letter and Dan's, Dan's, I Dan's view was just that you become these management teams become so deeply entrenched. There's just no way to get them out by yeah. voting. The only way to get them out is to embarrass them out of their position.
2: Yeah. I think that there's some, there's some, some truth to that. I think I I've seen that work over time. I've mm-hmm. seen, but I've, then I've seen people get tired and sort of go away, but, uh, I think it's. Uh, we presuppose
1: that the person can be embarrassed, and some people just you cannot embarrass them. So that's that. It be, doesn't that work that for everybody.
2: The, the primary uh, nuance that's required there: these, these people have any shame? That's it. That's it. Where's exactly. that on our checklist, Eric? <laughs> yeah. have that on our checklist somewhere. <laughs> do these people have shame? Yes or no? It's
0: on the checklist. Yeah, now, yeah.
2: So we want to talk about value for a little bit and how that's gone and some of the some of what's going on out there. I mean, we've got uh, the cubes ripping
1: today, and uh, you know, so if the the gap it's, widens. It's not a good day for it's. Like, I was I, I, like every child wins a prize today, but for undervalued small, small and micro equity. That's that was the the only place that doesn't seem to be going up today. But it did pretty well over the last few days. So who knows? I think you see a lot of volatility. Often that means there's some sort of regime change coming. But who who really knows? Value's been beaten up. That's no nobody knows that better than I do, and everybody knows that pretty well. I think. The reasons why, you know, it's to the point that when I look at the portfolio, the dividend yield across the portfolio is higher than the dividend yield, Russell 2000, Russell 3000, S&P 500. The growth rates in the portfolio are higher than the S&P 500, Russell 2000, Russell 3000. If I think that that's the way that valuations, if that's what I think that things are worth, you don't need any multiple re-rating for that asset class to outperform these other asset classes. Now, outperformance might not be enough. It might be, I think that the markets are very, very expensive. So it's possible that it, we just do a little bit better on the way down than they do. And that would be, that wouldn't be that would be great. But I, I can see that baked into it now, there's pretty good, there are pretty good returns that should be baked into it, ignoring what the multiple does. But I think that if it starts working, then naturally you get multiple re-rating through that. So I think value is so beaten up and the, the, the crazy thing is, I know a lot of these names that are in the portfolio because they were previously in the top 25% of names and they fall into the bottom 75% of names just by virtue of the fact that they're so crushed. Yeah. They're things that are just, they're just unfairly valued where they are. And I think that if they were trading at like 30 times earnings, you'd say, well, that's reasonable given the performance. It's just that for whatever reason, the market sometimes just falls out of love with stuff mm. and it just trades down, and it it gives you this opportunity to buy these things where you can see I've got a good yield, I've got a good for I've got reasonably good growth in it, and they sh- it should work out. Whatever the market thinks of it, if the if the multiple stays the same, or even deteriorates a little bit, they still deliver performance over the uh, over the next few years.
2: Yeah, I think for us, we 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 run two for clients. We run two individual equity strategies. One is more growth oriented strategy, and the other one I would describe as more value a value oriented strategy. We try not to underwrite a lot of multiple expansion into whatever we're doing. We, we typically try not to write underwrite multiple expansion, particularly on the value side of the portfolio, because like, you can't really count on it. And sort of the underlying philosophy for us is like over time, stocks tend to follow earnings and cash flows and, right, you know, and that's, that's generally it. Do you think um, the sort of the, you know, we're familiar with academic research on the value premium. I think somebody won a Nobel prize for that, for that insight. Do you think that that's actually something that's structurally, Embedded in markets, or do you think it maybe is more of a cyclical thing that kind of comes and goes and shows up at various times?
1: Yeah, uh, I honestly I don't know. It, it's it certainly seems to be it, it certainly seems to be cyclical. It's not. It's definitely. I mean, it's the last ten years show that it's cyclical. It's kind of it's disappeared over the last ten years. It's been a. Um, it's been. I, mean, I think yeah. Shaunessy's have got some research about this where they show that what typically happens for value stocks is that the earnings Drift down over the holding period, but the earnings drift down less than the market expects. And so you do get this multiple expansion while you're holding. And that is ultimately how value delivers returns, that it's not so much uh, they do, they only do better, they, they do better to the downside, perhaps, than, than people expect. And so there's a little bit of multiple expansion. That's how the return happens. So it is a sort of a multiple re rating story. And growth stocks are the other way around. People just overestimate how much it's going to grow. So even though they do grow more over the course of the holding period, there's some compression in the multiple and that's why they tend to underperform as a group. That's right. not been the case for about the last 10 years. For the last 10 years, it's actually been the things that are growing, they've had the multiple expansion as the things that are shrinking that have seen multiple contraction. So where 10 years ago, and certainly when I was writing deep value, I probably hadn't quite appreciated that well, I didn't know this was coming. Certainly, and it probably was already going on, and I didn't really realize it at the time. But I would have said that you could almost bank on multiple expansion in a lot of these things. Like it, it probably is something that you you're just going to see it. That's just the nature of it. And I think that what I've learned over the last five years or so is that multiple expansion is something that just seems to it, it's it you cannot rely on it. It's not going to be there. So you, you really have to um make sure that you're gonna get the return somewhere else. The, and the sources of return are yield, growth, and you know, multiple expansion, if you like. Expansion multiple. Yeah. Yeah. Better, better or worse.
2: Do you yeah. think um what role what role do you think like the like just the level of interest rates and the growth outlook generally play into these valuations?
1: It's such a hard question because that you know what I want to say is that it's not my fault. And you know interest rates are so squashed and running against me all the time and it's this duration argument that's pushing up growth but the real answer is i don't know i mean i, I aqr have it's it's such a compelling argument right it makes so much it, it makes abundant sense to me that growth stocks are more like 30 year treasuries or make more like the long bond duration makes them more sensitive they're going to go up a lot more when that reverses it's going to be a bloodbath at the the growth end it's going to be better at the value end but then I read the AQR paper, and that they, they say, well, if that's the case, like let's think about all the, what is it what does it mean for it to be? Are we talking about the shape of the yield curve? Are we talking about um, absolute movements in in um, interest rates? I mean, what how are we defining the interest rate? What are we actually talking about when we say that? So they they just let's just go and test every single iteration of that against performance in equities, and see what still stands up on a statistical basis after we do that. And they find that nothing does. That's kind of the the shocking thing to me. So. I, it's one of those things that I think it's a really, comp- theoretically, it's very, very compelling. Right. Empirically, there's no support for it.
2: Yeah, I think so. I'll, I mean, my, my comment on it is uh, on that aspect of things is like ours is a profession that um, is more social science in a lot of respects than, than hard science. And um, I've noticed that there's a lot of physics envy uh, amongst the, the, the practitioners in this business. So I... I just, I, I don't know. I'm i have I have a hard time digesting the ver- the various arguments for that. It's, uh, you know whether it's there or not there or, or whatever. It's it, it's tough to say. Um,
1: so but really, it's a, it certainly seems to me that higher interest rates make you know it, it, it does seem to be some relationship between the value premium and interest rates. If you've got higher interest rates, it does seem to be that there's more value premium there. But it's just not supported in the data. It, it makes sense to me that if you can, you know, you're looking at it. It's always a question of alternatives or opportunity cost so my opportunity cost right now is an 80 bit 10 year with a whole lot of duration risk in it who really knows what's going to happen over the holding period of the next 10 years like interest rates interest rates could be negative interest rates could go back to long run returns the range is something like that right so if interest rates go negative then um probably want to be in the in the growth stocks if interest rates go positive or massively positive does that then start impacting the underlying businesses of the value stocks which tend to be kind of heavier industries and maybe more levered and do they yeah. get hurt in that so it's hard to come up with a scenario where value works and to, to what
2: extent do you think maybe it's a second it's like a sector phenomenon in disguise so like you've got a heavy tech and healthcare on the growth side versus heavy financials and uh at one point, energy—it's a lot smaller. Energy used to be, I think, fifteen or sixteen percent of the value, right. ended, and yeah. now I think it's—is it three percent of the S and P and six percent of the value it's benchmark, something like, like something that. like that, it's right? Like it's—it yeah. it, but it used to be way bigger. And uh, right. I don't know if that's part of part of the performance issue or not, but
1: I think that that's so. You know, there's there's that, that's that's almost certainly the case that it has been a big part of the performance issue because if you look within the sectors, or if you look within industries, they still do follow, it it is still the undervalued stuff that tends to outperform. It's just that when you're discretionary across every industry, you're just going to be, and you're approaching, you know, it might be a, you know, there's been a lot of work put into, uh, are our valuation approaches wrong? Are we, is there some reason why we're applying? You know, you should be thinking about energy the same way you're thinking about tech, because they're different businesses. One's very asset light, one's very asset heavy. One's going to absorb a lot of capital. One doesn't need to absorb capital at all. One probably grows throwing off capital. That aside, if you're the, you know, just on simple ratios and simple metrics, if you're if you're thinking in that way, you're more heavily exposed to The heavier industries like energy and financials and those things and that's been it's been a disastrous decade for those things and it's been a very good decade for for tech you know that 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 that, that's a it's a probably true but prospectively i think it was incredibly hard to see that that was going to be the case i think the the best the best i the way that i've sort of started thinking about it in 2015 my a friend of mine jake taylor wrote an article where he said this is the worst opportunity set for value in 25 years just in the sense that there was so little dispersion everything was very compressed and jake at economic who's a twitter handle he pointed out that he had the morningstar style box like large to small value to blend to growth and he said every single one of these pe's these ford pe's are roughly identical which is wrong they shouldn't yeah. be all the same small shouldn't be the same as big mm-hmm. Growth shouldn't be the same as value. And that came out and He he posted that in about 2015, something like that. Since then, they've probably gone back to where they should have been. There should have been discounts and some and premiums and others and so on. Mm-hmm. And that ride has been incredibly painful for value.
2: But yeah, I think it's, it's probably overshot. overshot. The last three years or so has been yeah. particularly rough. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny you mentioned Jake. I, I, I used to watch his, um, his YouTube videos that he would do. Um, Bobby's telling us it's time. The producer Bobby's telling us it's time to land the plane. Though we're gonna have Jake on because I, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think he runs a
1: fund now as well, right? Jake's got a Jake's got a yeah. He's got a not, he's got a firm that that he's got SMAs in the firm. Typically invests uh, IRA assets. I see. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we're gonna have him on to talk about something because we used to want. We used to enjoy. I used to enjoy his five good questions. But, very uh, thoughtful guy. Very very thoughtful guy. Like if I have a if I have some sort of question that I want. You know, in a philosophical sense, thought about. It. I go and talk to him, and he's got, he's got, he's already thought about it, and he's got the philosophers who've dealt with it, and he, he can give you the, the angle on it. He's 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 got some deep. There's some deep thinking going on there.
0: We we, we yeah. like we like Good. folks
1: like that. So uh, I don't know, Eric, you want to land the plane? Sure.
0: Um, I guess looking back to why I, I mean, you've had such a amazing career so far that's spread across you. Going through law, writing the book. The blog,
2: M&A, the fund,
0: the, the m the ETF, you know, looking back for someone that's starting out today, I mean, what piece of advice would you give them or what advice would you give your younger self knowing kind of the, the journey that you've been on so far? Oh, that's a good question.
1: I would say, you know, if you can do it, try to get into something like Columbia, get into the, get into the Columbia program. If you can do that, do that. For the very vast majority of people, that's not going to be a possibility. So they, you know, or, or equivalent. I'm not saying necessarily just Columbia, but Columbia is such a great brand. And you are then going to go and walk. Assuming that you want to be an investor, you want to be a value investor, you want to work in a firm or ultimately run your own firm. That's where you want to start. You've got to be investing for yourself in your PA. You've got to be buying positions and holding them because until you really do that, you don't know the, um, you don't know the pain and the pleasure of like doing a whole lot of work and seeing something lose for a long period of time and then having it turn around and work and sort of your own dealing with your own emotions through that process. And the other thing that I would say is to write a blog. You know, it's It's just like writing a journal. Write it anonymously if you have to or if you want to. You don't want to put your name out there. That's perfectly fine. It's just a great way of putting your thoughts down so when you revisit a position in 12 months' time or in two years' time or five years' time, you can go back and see what was I thinking then, how have I evolved since then, what did I get right, what did I get wrong? And the nice thing about the internet, and the reason that I say do it publicly and do it under a pseudonym or anonymously if you, if you have to, is that over a period of time, there are enough people out there who read this stuff, and if you're, they don't really care who you are, if your thought process as evidenced in that blog is a good one. You will get hired. People will want to back you. That's that's really all you have to do because it's the, the nature of this business. Is people don't really care where you come from if your ideas are good enough and they can profit from you. They will they will hire you or back you. Yeah,
2: there's a it's very uh, no, it's a meritocracy of ideas, right?
1: right? It's kind of like it's it's a little bit it's a little bit uh, you know it's kind of it's a cliche to say, but it's, it, it's true. It's the nature of it. If you, if you're good enough that you, you're, you're going to find a place. And I've seen it happen so many times to guys who are just way outside the, the ordinary, the norm, not in New York, you know, odd ca- kind of characters, but their ideas are just so strong. Their written expression of what they were doing. They worked, they got picked up by big funds. So it definitely happens and it works.
0: Yeah. So, device. Thank you so much for being on. We, we really appreciate it. Where can people go to find out more about you? Where can they follow you?
1: So, I have, I'm on, I'm on Twitter, greenbacked, it's a weird spelling, G R E E N B A C K D. And I have, have a website, acquirersmultiple.com, which has a free screen for large 1,000 stocks. Um, that's got all the books and all of the other stuff on it. The firm is acquirers funds. And the two funds that we're managing at the moment are the long short acquirers fund, which is Zig, and long only small and micro deep value, uh, which is deep. EEP like it. Nice.
0: Thank, thank you, Tobias. Again, really appreciate it. Pleasure having you on. Um, for all you listening, you can find uh, all of our other blogs, anywhere podcasts are available. Um, you can check us out at snn.network. You can check us out on the SNN YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash SNN Wire. Remember, I'm Eric. This is Gary. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank
1: you, Toby. Thank you, Toby. Thank you, Toby.